Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead around Delmarva. Delmarva is an area that is on the eastern shore of the United States. It covers all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Today we'll be going over a case that is relatively famous, um, not just where I live, but has been a part of a number of different television shows, with the first that I remember seeing it on was Forensic Files. When this actually occurred, though, I was away at college, so when I did see the episode for the first time, um, I was watching it with my mother, and you know, I was just kind of in shock because I had no idea that that had happened so close to where we were actually living. And the case that we'll be covering is one of a man who just horrifically tortured the women that he targeted. So that does lead me into giving my disclaimer about the content of the podcast. Normally, any episode that I cover will have at least one or two things that may be very sensitive for some people to hear about. This episode in itself has violence, um, also sexual assault. So this may not be an episode that everybody wants to listen to or can listen to. So I definitely understand that, but wanted to make sure that I gave a clear warning about what would be covered in this particular case. Before I do get too far into the content and events that happened um, to actually two women, even though one case was a little more publicized than the other, I do just want to mention a couple of things. The first being that there will be a link to a picture that will be in the um, description of the episode. To get a better understanding about some of the content, you may want to, um, once we get to the part where we're discussing a sketch, go in and look at that um, if you get a chance, just because it lets you know what investigators and the victims were looking at um, you know, at the time of this event and actually for years afterwards. Also, all of the sources that I used will be linked in the to, um, into the description of the episode. That way, if you do want to go back and read about you know, some, some of the events, you can as well. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, there are a couple different ways to do so. Um, one of them is sharing the episodes or you know, the whole podcast with friends and family, those that you may think will find the content interesting. If you do listen on Apple, then there are ways that you can like or make comments. Not all podcast platforms have that, but Apple is one of the biggest platforms and they usually do have those options. What that does is it just brings the podcast up in the algorithm so that more people can find it if they're looking for you know, specific types of content. Also, as also though not um, really applicable in this, this particular episode, there are some sources that I use that are behind, 
I'm sorry, behind paywalls or, you know, you have a subscription in order to access certain things and sometimes in order to get copies of, you know, whether they be court papers or other documents that are not publicly available, there can be costs that are associated with those. So I will have a PayPal and a buy me a coffee link listed in the description. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. One of the unique things about this podcast, I think, at least in my opinion, is that I'm pretty familiar with many of the locations where events occurred. In most cases, I've either visited the area, in some cases I've lived in the area, and even known people who were involved in the crimes or have been very close to the location of the crimes when they were committed. Um, Just looking back at some other episodes, um, there was the one where I was on the same route as a man who was shooting at places along both that route and within certain towns. So I was pretty close, um, you know, within a couple of miles when that was occurring. Um, one of the episodes that I po- um, I published a couple of weeks ago mentioned Wallops Island, and I have been to the visitor center and have seen that on many, many occasions. Um, and just while I'm thinking of that as well, um, a couple of weeks ago I did publish um, a couple of episodes near the same time. So if you're used to just getting the one episode every couple of weeks, you may want to go back and look and see if there were any episodes that you may have missed. But you know, just basically, I am very familiar with the areas where these crimes or tragedies have occurred. Today's episode hits pretty close to home. I've lived within a few miles of this setting, and I also, if the timing had been a little different, maybe three years later, I would have been living in a very similar circumstance by myself in a place that was pretty close to where this occurred. And where it occurred was at the Laurel Village Mobile Home Park, and that was in Laurel, Delaware. I did have a cousin who stayed there for a while, and when he would need a ride, I would go pick him up and run the errands with him that he needed to have done. So... You know, I have been there, and probably at those times, I wasn't even aware that these events occurred because it was shortly after I was home from college, so I wouldn't have seen the episodes on TV that covered this case. But even without you know, having known someone who stayed there, without being so close, um, you know, living to this particular um, mobile home park, It isn't an area where if you're coming from, say, mid-Sussex County and you want to do some shopping and don't want to go through all of the traffic in Dover, you would head south to Salisbury, Maryland normally, and you you would pass by this location. People, thousands of people pass by um, the general location daily, and I'm sure most of them are not aware of the events that occurred or, you know, they may have not thought about them in a very long time. But I do think about it myself, not every time I pass, but, you know, some of the time when I do go past the area, I stop and I wonder how 
those who are involved in this case are doing. Laurel itself as a town is like many of those in Sussex County. There's some farmland and while on the main highway, there's some larger buildings and larger businesses. Within the actual town itself, it's very quaint and there's an area where I just love to go because the buildings are older and they just have this feel of small town USA where everybody probably knows your name and you know everybody there is hardworking, honest, and friendly. At least that's what you think when going through many towns that look like this that bring back in the way that the town is set up or in architecture a feeling of comfort and welcoming. But we all know that not everybody in a town can be honest and kind and loving. There will be some that make a town fear, that makes those within the community feel less safe in the place where they should be feeling the most safety, which is in their homes. On a September night in 1995, Kay Robinson was awoken by a pounding at her door. At the time, Kay was 32 years old and lived with her 12-year-old son. I will say here that I've also seen his age reported as 11, so I did just want to point that out. But in any event, he was a young child, still a preteen. At this time, Kay was working as an insurance salesperson, and her son Nick's father was not involved in his life, so she was doing everything that she could do just to make sure that her son was protected, that she kept a roof over his head, that he was you know, given everything that he needed to thrive as a child. Also at this time, she was involved with a man who, in some instances, was described as her fiancé. However, he's not really mentioned in many of the articles or the TV shows that I've mentioned. Um, he's not really involved in any of those, so to avoid having too many people mention, I'm not going to say his name, but just um, you kind of keep in mind that she was in a relationship. So the knock at the door that she received on that night would have been completely unexpected. It was in the early morning hours of September 19, 1995. And this was not a knock that she could ignore. It was persistent, so she couldn't just let it go and try to get back to sleep. When she did get to the door, there was a man who indicated that his car had broken down. And remember, this was 1995, so while I know there were some cell phones that were available or car phones, they were by no means cheap or portable. I had a cell phone at this time, and it had to be plugged into my car lighter to work. It also was about the size of an average, you know, over-the-shoulder handbag and was very, very expensive to use. So it's not something anyone would just have at that time. If you broke down, you had no choice but to try to reach out to someone for assistance. And like most people though, especially someone who had a young child living with them, Kay would have been leery about this man. Rather than ignoring him completely and telling him she couldn't help, 
she did offer to make a phone call for him. The man had introduced himself as Jack Wilson, and he did give her a phone number to call. When she did so, the person who picked up didn't know this Jack Wilson. So aware that this could have been some type of scheme or plan to try to enter the home, whether it be for robbery or even more sinister reasons, she did report this to the police. The Delaware State Police responded and while reviewing the area around her home, didn't see that anything was really out of the ordinary. And, you know, given the, the circumstances, there probably wouldn't have been. The man, if he was no longer in that area, probably would not have left any other type of trace for the state police to think that there were reasons to be concerned. Now, feeling that since the police had been there and had walked around her home, she did then go back to bed and try to get some more sleep. But unfortunately, as she slept, a nightmare was slowly making its way to her. In the middle of the night, she was once again awoken by a noise. She heard a door slamming, and while she tried to figure out what was happening, and went to try to figure out what was occurring, the same man who had been at her door earlier that day attacked her with a knife. All the while, I'm sure her mind went to her young son in the bedroom, and was, she was trying probably to come up with anything in her mind to make sure that he was protected. She did try to flee the attacker, but he was able to chase her and catch her. The attacker himself seemed to understand that there was another person living in the home, that there was a child. To add more leverage already to the knife that he was wielding, he said that if she did not cooperate, that he would kill her son. And as we can all imagine, she listened to what he said, knowing that the decisions she made could very well save her son's life. Normally, the name of a sexual assault victim is not released to the media. But Kay herself has done interviews and has discussed the events of that night. So her name is known in regards to these events. In between assaults, the man did tell Kay some things about himself, which I'm sure had to be chilling because why would someone tell you information about themselves if they were going to let you live. He probably did not want to be able to be identified because really what criminal would want to be identified. So knowing that she had seen his face and that he was giving her information, she probably had this sense of dread that he was planning on killing her because otherwise, why would he let her have information that could describe him, whether it was physically or about other aspects of her life. He told her that he did live in the same mobile home park as she did and that he had two children. The attacker was there for hours and before he left, he stabbed Kay and stabbed her and stabbed her and stabbed her again. So in about the same amount of time as we can say that word, stab, the attacker added one more stab wound. 
she was stabbed between 25 and 30 times. He also wanted to be sure that she was not going to be able to let anyone know what happened. So before he left, he also slit her throat. Kay realized that the only way for her to survive this attack was to play dead, basically. She laid there and didn't move, hoping that he would think she was dead and leave. And he did. Nick, who, acting with a presence of mind beyond his young age, had pretended to be asleep in his bed. The attacker had gone in and looked at him, so Nick was aware that someone was in the house. According to a reporter at the time, Tony Windsor, the attacker had been there for three hours, approximately, with Windsor describing the incident as, quote, three hours of torture, just horrific torture that she endured, end quote. Nick knew that his mother needed help. He ran to a neighbor's house, letting her know what had happened. The neighbor called 911 on behalf of Nick and reported that her neighbor had been stabbed and possibly assaulted. First responders made their way to the home and rushed Kay to the hospital with so many wounds to be treated. Many of the stab wounds had been to her back and the cut to her throat was described as one of the worst that the first responders had ever seen. And as this case was not quite horrific enough, I guess, in the eyes of the attacker, he had left a calling card on Kay. Now, in today's true crime, I guess you would say community, the term smiley face can mean a couple of different things. There's the smiley face killers, which at this point is you know, really a theory. And there have been other criminals who have used the image of a smiley face as a type of calling card. In this case, using Kay's own blood, he drew a smiley face on her back, a symbol that should be so innocuous that you show someone's happy becomes a symbol of fear. This symbol drawn on a victim after such a violent assault could be seen as a way of the as the attacker lessening the significance and horrific nature of the crime, as well as possibly trying to demean Kay herself. Upon waking up in the hospital, Kay had so many thoughts going through her mind. She was on life support and physically was in no way ready to face the attacker head on, but she was furious and said, quote, when I woke up, I didn't want to be there. I was furious. I was on life support. My throat was cut in 10 to 15 different places. I basically felt like he was trying to decapitate me. I felt like I was in a horror movie, end quote. But this was so much more frightening and real than any movie. Kay and her son could not just push pause or stop or come back to finish the scary movie whenever they felt ready to. This was something that was happening in their real lives and they had to face it head on then and there. And she would have a long road ahead of her. While the th cuts to her throat could have led to much more damage, such as hitting the spinal cord or slicing open the carotid artery or jugular vein, 
Miraculously, none of those were hit. The fact that she survived at all would have been deemed as miraculous. And what was just as important in order to protect the public, she had seen her attacker. And at this point, her attacker may have been lured into this false sense of security that there was no way that she could describe him. Even if news of the assault had made its way into the newspapers or television, he may have thought there was no way that she would be able to either survive or be able to give a description after the horrific wounds that he gave to her. But what he didn't realize that with every attack, with every stab that he made at her, he was giving her the opportunity to observe him and identify him. While stabbing at her, he asked, quote, are you dead yet, bitch? And he continued to stab her with a frenzied strength. So given this information, he probably felt pretty safe that there was no way anybody would be able to identify him. Unused to such a horrific crime happening, the town itself began to feel less secure. Now, I remember even before this, when I was younger, we wouldn't lock the door when we were home. You know, we really wouldn't think that anybody would break into a home while it was occupied, but we now know better. We know that safety and security is something that we can't, can't take for granted, even if we live in a town that we see as innocent and wholesome. I can say those feelings of security have pretty much evaporated, not only, unfortunately, in Laurel, but in many towns across Delmarva and across the country. Kay provided a description and a sketch that was based on that description being released to the media. A detail that was not released, however, was the smiley face that had been drawn on her back. You've all probably heard that sometimes law enforcement will keep a key detail to themselves to protect the integrity of the case. And while for a long time I wondered exactly what that meant, this is a time where there is a key detail that will help the police be able to determine if they are actually talking to the right person if anyone ever confesses or if there is a... Um, someone who calls in a tip because someone has told them something, that's something that the tipster or caller can, you know, say so that the police know it is a legitimate lead. While Kay had been taken to the hospital with emergency personnel trying to save her life, police and forensics units descended upon her home. They went through the home trying to find any clue that the attacker may have left. What they did find, though, is that he had wiped down anything that had been touched. But Kay, while observing everything that was going on around her, she thought that possibly he didn't wipe down one item. So while he did think about wiping his fingerprints off, the follow-through was completely flawed. He had taken a drink from a glass within the home, after doing so, he took his sleeve and wiped the prints away, and out of what one must assume was habit, he actually took the glass and set it down, touching it again, but 
probably not realizing it. So there could still be prints on that glass, and there were. In analyzing them, a fingerprint examiner named Rodney Hagman found that the prints themselves were very distinctive by having what he thought was some type of lubricant on them. So he saw these fingerprints but was afraid that they were more delicate and actually put the glass in the freezer. So what he was both trying to do was to make sure that the fingerprints themselves stayed viable, that in terms that they used, that they didn't melt. So while it never says exactly what the prints made the prints into, so, you know, whether it was a film or something on his hands or something that had been on the cup that caused those fingerprints to be different than just the normal you know, touching of a glass or picking it up than we're used to. So, you know, they kind of had to think outside the box. By freezing them also, it made the, the fingerprints more distinctive, and that way they felt more secure in dusting them in order to raise the prints. So let's just keep some details about the fingerprints in mind. About two weeks into the investigation, the police received another call from Laurel Village. Neighbors of Kay's had seen a man drive up to the home, light a candle, and begin to pray on his knees. So, yes, this was a little bit of weird behavior, especially since at this point, Kay, you know, had survived, and lighting a candle is sometimes seen as something in memoriam. Maybe not for everybody, so I'm just speaking from my experience. But, of course, the neighbors thought this to be odd, and they contacted the police. So when the man was approached by law enforcement, he said that he wanted the attacker to be caught, and he was there praying for that. He also offered to assist the police. The man in question was a 38-year-old named Doug De Silva. Now, I know that I may use the word creepy sometimes, um, I don't think I've used it yet so far, but this was creepy. Um, so here we go. De Silva had an article about the attack taped to his windshield. He also had the sketch that had been made of the attacker taped there as well. He said that he had placed it there so when he was driving, he could keep an eye out for this attacker. The thing was... De Silva looked just like the man in the picture. Something else, too, was that he actually lived about 100 miles away from Laurel. But his ex-wife and daughter did live in Laurel Village. So he was familiar with the territory. To add yet another level of suspicion to this man, he had actually been the suspect in a murder of a 16-year-old girl the previous year. This, of course, would put him directly into the crosshairs of law enforcement. And if you didn't think things could get any weirder, they can. So here's the fact that in the middle of De Silva being questioned by the police about this attack, he asked for a job application. So we have a man who has been the suspect in a murder a man who falls to his knees and prays outside the home of a recent assault victim, 
and a man who looks incredibly like the sketch of the attacker. And this man asks for a job application to become a state trooper. So not knowing exactly what to think, police thought, you know, in my, in my opinion, maybe they thought they were, that he was trying to taunt them in some ways. I just wish that there was a way we could see the facial expression of the officers when he asked for this. So police were definitely going to take a picture of De Silva along with others who had some physical similarities to him and show it to Kay, or show them to Kay. And De Silva did finish filling out that application to become a state trooper. He handed it back to the police and what the police saw probably would have chilled them to the bone. At the bottom of the application, he left a symbol. He had drawn a smiley face. So here we are. We have a man who draws a smiley face who has been caught acting suspiciously outside the home of this woman who had been attacked, who also had a smiley face drawn on her back. And while a smiley face is by no means rare, to put it on a job application does seem less than professional. I know the actions of De Silva had been questionable anyway, but still looking at the context of an application, it doesn't necessarily seem appropriate to have it on there. Coupled with the fact that there was a piece of information that police had not given to the media or given to the public, and this man draws the same symbol as that piece of information that they had not released. So this just strengthened the police's resolve in that this was the man who had attacked Kay Robinson and tried to kill her. So they took that photo lineup to her and she identified Doug De Silva. Not only did she identify him, but Nick did as well. Even though Nick was not there in the same room as the attacker, he did see him, such as when the attacker came to Nick's room. He probably kept his eyes open just as little slits, but was able to see the man that had severely injured his mother. So Nick also identified De Silva. So given all of these details between the strange behavior, the appearance, and that he looked exactly like the, the sketch, and you know having the article and picture tape to his windshield, the police thought they had gotten to the bottom of this case. Even more, when confronted with some of these things and that he had been identified, De Silva didn't actually deny involvement. What he did say is he wanted to apologize. He also had no alibi, so all bets were on him. Detectives were sure that they had their man. Doug De Silva asked investigators to tell Kay that he was sorry. He said that he remembered going to her mobile home, but he didn't remember the actual attack on her. Truly, though, that's all investigators, prosecutors, and a jury would need to hear in order to both indict and convict De Silva, we would think. But there were a couple more things to think about, or three, and that was three fingerprints. Those three fingerprints that were found on the glass in Kay's home did not match De Silva, so that was odd within itself. 
There were no prints, though, anywhere in the home that connected to De Silva. So where could these have come from? Could they have just been fingerprints left by someone else who had visited the home that day? You know, my questions were going to, did police, you know, fingerprint people who did come to the house frequently, like Kay's fiance? But just before they went to trial, the prosecution and police got another blow to the case. And this pretty much rang the death knell to the case. The DNA that had been collected in Kay's assault kit did not match De Silva. So, like any time there is a sexual assault, there is a kit that's run where evidence is collected. There was no way the prosecution felt that they could continue. DNA, while had now been used in court for at least a few years now, and people were really becoming reliant on that as the main piece of evidence whenever available because there's no denying that DNA, which is specific to one human being, unless they are a multiple birth that's identical, identical such as twins or triplets. So that DNA is your blueprint and only your blueprint. So the prosecution knew they could not risk double jeopardy so that in case something else came up years later that did tie De Silva directly to the attack, they would have to wait for that. They could not proceed without being able to explain why his DNA was different than the DNA in the sexual assault kit or why the fingerprints did not match. Kay, now out of the hospital and trying to recover, was very fearful. She felt insecure in the home that she had made and she bought a gun. She even went to De Silva's home and sat out front of it with the gun there. She wanted to go up to him and take her own vengeance, but she didn't with the reason being the main reason that she fought so hard, her son. She did not want to go to jail for murdering this man, so she decided not to kill him. So police had to open up their eyes a little bit further again and look beyond just De Silva. They had to start looking at the possibility that it was another person because they couldn't just rest on the idea that one day, you know, it would be able to be explained why the fingerprints and DNA didn't match. So, but a lot of time would pass. Investigators would review the case time and time again, trying to find something anything to put Kay's attacker behind bars. For years, all of this amounted to nothing. That was until about nine years after Kay had been attacked. Rob Hudson had been a detective on this case, and a detective from Maryland contacted him. They had recently had a case that reminded a resident um, or someone from the public about Kay Robinson's case, and they reached out to the police. There were similarities in the two assaults that could not be ignored. The victim of the Maryland assault had been a resident of a mobile home park. She was also a single single mother, and the attacker had used a knife, but strangely enough also had a rolling pin in his hand. The woman from the Maryland attack had been able to get free from him briefly 
just like Kay had. And even though he had tied her with a cord, she did struggle free. But he chased her and caught up to her. This is just my thought. I kind of wonder if he liked the thought of chasing someone, if maybe he didn't make the binds as tight as he could have, or it's just a thought because in both cases, the women were able to get away briefly and, you know, actually take a few steps to try to get away before he caught them again. The attacker in the Maryland case actually took sheets and cut them up to use as ties for his victim, as well as a gag. Like Kay's attack, he spent time there. It was not just entering the premises, assaulting her, and then leaving. He instilled terror on this woman, telling her that he would, quote, operate on her, end quote. And to what I'm sure was the mother's terror, the attacker, when he left, said that they would be watching. And if she called the police within a half an hour, that she and her son would be killed. I do find this very interesting because it was a very realistic time frame. Sometimes we may see on TV whether a show be an, a scripted drama or even a true crime case that someone will leave and tell the person that they've just attacked that they'll be watching the home. Or probably more often in cases of a kidnapping, the people are told that someone will be watching the home and if they see law enforcement approach, then their loved one will be killed. So setting a time frame of 30 minutes was very realistic. Instead of saying, you know, an indefinite period of time or even a few hours, this would be seen as a more realistic threat so that the victim would actually wait the half an hour to call the police. If he had said something like, you know, someone will be watching your house for the next five days or something like that, then the victim probably after, you know, they were able to calm down for a few minutes and think about things, would have realized that no one's going to sit there and watch a home for five days, you know, or even five hours, because that would be very suspicious. A half an hour, though, is something that, you know, might not draw suspicion. So that gives the attacker more time to actually get away than if they said five days. Because I'm telling you, if someone broke in my home and said someone would be watching you for, you know, a week or something like that, I really wouldn't believe them because what attacker is going to sit outside the home for, you know, that period of time. So the victim of the Maryland attack was able to crawl over to the phone and dial 911. The Dorchester County, Maryland's sheriff's office responded to the scene and cut the ties that had been binding the woman's hands. Her hands were bruised and swollen from how incredibly tight the attacker had tied her hands and wrist. She was examined and DNA was found. When this DNA was run, they found a match to a man named Mark Eskridge. So DNA is infallible in the sense that it does not match another person on earth. You know, again, unless there's a multiple birth with an identical twin or triplet. Furthermore, after Maryland contacted Delaware about the similarities in the case, 
The DNA was run against Kay's attacker, and it was a match. The only thing probably that police were wondering this time was, what about the fingerprints on the glass from Kay's house? But with the DNA as a positive match to Eskridge, prosecutors could then move forward on charging him with Kay's attack. With the DNA, it seemed like a slam dunk, even if the prints didn't match. But also, what they did find is that Eskridge had lived in Laurel Village at the time of Kay Robinson's attack. He was married and had a child at the time of the first attack, which means there are some things that correlate to you know, what the attacker was saying, even though in Kay's case, I believe it was two children that he said he had. Still, you know, that was something that could not be overlooked since, since he lived in the exact same area. Kay, however, when shown pictures to pick out Mark Eskridge as her attacker or not, did not pick him out. Though I'm sure she will forever remember his face, there had been some changes to Mark Eskridge in those nine years. And with what investigators had as incontrovertible evidence, the DNA, they did move forward. Like De Silva, Eskridge would say things that while denying him as being the attacker, would also place him at the scene. So very similar to the whole De Silva um, ramblings and to some extent of saying he was guilty and remembered going there but didn't remember the actual attack, Eskridge kind of pulled some of the same stunts in regards to that. And Kay was left wondering... What if, while waiting outside of De Silva's home, she had decided to act on her impulse and go up to him with her gun and kill him? So even though Kay could not pick Eskridge out of a lineup, she knew beyond any shadow of doubt that he was the one that attacked her. And right now is about the time if you're at a computer or a mobile device where you can get to the picture or pictures, this may be the time to do so. I am going to try to use them as a thumbnail um, for the episode description, but you probably will not be able to get to see both the whole picture or the fine detail in regards to, you know, to similarities and differences between the two men. Looking back at events, it was theorized that when Mark Eskridge knocked on Kay's door, he was not necessarily trying to get in at that time but whether he wanted to make sure that no one else was in the home with her, such as her boyfriend or another family member, pretty much an adult that may be able to intervene, whereas a child would be less likely you know, to be able to overcome an attacker and help his mother um, you know, in that case. So while looking at it initially, it could look like he was trying to get in, it was theorized he was actually just trying to get an idea of who may or may not be there. Um, and, you know, most attackers, um, you know, people who would break into a place do see a male as a bigger threat than a female. So I don't mean to sound sexist in any way, but that's what, you know, a lot of criminals will think about. So upon seeing her open the door 
and it was not a male who opened the door, he probably felt pretty comfortable that no one else was there because, again, if there's a knock on the door late at night and there is a male available, you know, most people or most households, the man would go to the door to try to answer. I know that's, you know, the case in my home and growing up, um, you know, just, as I said, criminals tend to see that as a bigger threat. The attack on the woman in Maryland had actually occurred in October of 2002. So both in the fall months as well, or at least, you know, getting close to. And in February of 2005, Mark Eskridge was convicted of that attack. Um, there were other charges as well that were in relation to the attack. And as a result, he was sentenced to life in prison. In regards to Kay's case, he took a plea deal and was given a life sentence plus 20 years. It really didn't matter then at that point as far as how long he would serve but it would matter for the sense of justice knowing that he answered for both cases and was guilty in both the Maryland case and the attack on Kay Robinson. If you've listened to some of my earlier episodes, some things might remind you of them in this case. One is the sheer coincidence. In my first episode, a man was suspected of killing his mother for a very long time because his story was incredible. He had picked up a man to drive part way to his destination and when he told the man to get out, the man attacked him. Um, the driver of the vehicle who had stopped did not want to go straight home so he rode around so that the man could not follow him. But later he along with a police officer found his mother dead in her home which was adjacent to his home. So of course he is suspected because who would think that a man would attack both the son and the mother in the same night when they were not at the same home, but it happened. And then in another case, it involved the death of a young girl at the hands of a man named Thomas Legg. And he did what this person did as well, what Mark Eskridge did. He crossed state lines while Thomas Legg did it a lot more and got away with it for a lot longer. But the biggest example to me comes in the fact that because Legg had been convicted of a crime in one state and was serving time, then the other state didn't bother to go through with a sentencing. Um, or a plea or anything. They just pretty much didn't do anything with the case. Because of that, when he won an appeal and got out on the case in Maryland, because Delaware had not filed charges, had not you know, had a conviction or a sentence passed down on him, he was just able to walk free from Maryland. He didn't have to answer for the crimes that he did in Delaware. So we see that there was this delay in actually you know, seeing justice because there was the state line involved. If a citizen had not recognized the you know, similarities, these two cases may have never been you know, put together as being related, at least not until later. 
But why wasn't the DNA caught earlier? Why wasn't it run through CODIS? Now, CODIS is an index that, you know, houses the DNA of criminals across the country. So I did look into CODIS itself and see approximately, you know, when it was established. The origins of CODIS actually go back to 1989, but at that time it was more of an idea on what could be done with the DNA. Um, it was in 1998 that, you know, it really started to be used. So 1998 and 2002, you know, we have to look at those two dates and wonder why the DNA wasn't compared. Was there a backlog in Maryland where it didn't actually get loaded into CODIS yet? Um, now the case um, where... You know, K was attacked, happened in 1995. So was it that that DNA wasn't loaded to CODIS yet? You know, so we have to wonder why it took so long. We've heard, at least I've heard, that there are a lot of agencies that are very far behind on forensics. And as we can see in a case like this, you know, if someone offends in one state, it's very important to have that information in another so they can't keep trying to cross state lines to elude capture every time they commit a crime. After this case, investigators did look at this as a way to emphasize that eyewitness testimony is not always reliable. This is, of course, not to say anything negative about the identifications made by Kay and by Nick in the picture lineups. Um, you know, for one thing, the resemblance of the two men was very, very striking, as well as the fact that Kay had just gone through a horrendous ordeal with De Silva's odd behavior and the fact that there were two eyewitnesses, though, it could have very well led to that case or for De Silva to be charged in that case and possibly to have been serving time for Kay's attack when he hadn't actually done it. This is why investigators will still look for proof, even if they haven't have a confession or a quasi-confession, as in this case. And it also emphasizes the importance of communities and having their input and support in cases when the police do reach out and need help. In this case, it would have been in identifying a person through the picture but also in making sure important details of a case are known to the public. So like here, a person who had seen something on the news or who had read it in the newspaper recognized that there were these similarities. So, you know, there are instances when the community does need to provide tips to try to make sure that those who've committed these types of crimes or any crime are brought to justice. This also makes me think of the saying, innocent until proven guilty. And while sometimes I admit, it's hard for me to say when there's such overwhelming evidence against somebody who submitted or who's committed a violent act, that when there's just so much evidence, you want to say that the person is guilty. But if somebody had looked at Doug De Silva, at his picture, at his behavior, many, many people were thinking he was guilty. In fact, he was not. 
And thankfully, the police did keep the case open. And even though nothing you know, flagged in the DNA database, you know, there were detectives who were familiar with the case and you know, able to move forward with it once they got that call from Maryland. There are still a couple of questions like who those fingerprints belong to. It's never been stated in anything that I found. And I just kind of wonder if it was left by possibly the fiance when they had been visiting on a previous time. The other question I have is both men actually used the argument of they remember going to the mobile home park, but they don't remember committing the crime. So I do believe that De Silva probably legitimately believed that he had committed a crime. And he felt such guilt, even though he hadn't, that he was praying for forgiveness, most likely, and he was praying for Kay to get better. Because just his wording and some of his actions really make me believe that, you know, he thought some of those things. However, I'm not quite so sure about Eskridge. Could Eskridge have heard what... Um, Doug De Silva had said and tried to go with the same argument that, yes, I was there, but I don't remember doing it. Who knows? But it is a question that I will always you know, think about in regards to this case. And you may now be wondering what happened to Kay after you know the attack and after everything went through the court system. The attack did limit her in terms of some physical movement. Kay did have support in terms of friends and family that were there for her, and she did acknowledge the importance of that. She also has taken self-defense training as well as firearm training. As she went through such a traumatic event, she wanted to make sure that she and her son stayed safe. She also wrote a book about the attack. So Kay Robinson and the Maryland victim showed bravery in the face of evil. Their number one goal was to protect their children and both survived physically. Robinson, like I said, still has some physical issues as a result of her attack. However, it seems like she has thrived and I wish nothing but the best for her and for the woman who was attacked in Maryland. So everyone, thank you for hanging in. I know this was kind of a graphic case because of one there being two victims at different times as well as just the you know the frenzy of the attack in that Kay was stabbed so many times and while with most cases we can look at an event and think that could have been me or that situation could have happened to my brother or something like that this case, at least to me, feels like it literally could have been anybody. And that's why some cases inspire more fear than others. I think at another level, too, it taps into every parent's fear of being in a situation where someone else may control the fate of your child. And lastly, it was the fact that she did everything right that evening. Someone knocks on your door and they legitimately could have had car problems. And since it was a time when there, were, there weren't any cell phones really, 
um, available or affordable for most people, she did what most people would have done. She didn't want to leave a person stranded if they legitimately needed help, but she also did not let that person in. And when she felt that things were off and not quite right, she called the police. Then when she was attacked, she followed the directions that Eskridge gave her. But she fought in a silent way. She couldn't fight him physically in fear of him hurting her child. But she observed him in order to provide information to the authorities that came up with a very accurate drawing of what her attacker looked like. So, you know, again, it may not have been the ability to fight physically against him, but she was able to fight him. And ultimately, he is exactly where he needs to be so that he will not harm any other people. So again, thank you guys for listening today. I hope that with Kay's story, there was some inspiration as well in that she was able to survive such a violent attack, but then went on to take self-defense classes as well as authoring a book retelling her story. So now I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for the next episode. I have a few um, incidents or events that I have most of the notes for. I've read through some of the articles and you know, have a lot of information, but I'm trying to you know, kind of vary the actual types of cases so that it might be true crime one episode, then a natural disaster the next, or something like that, so that it's not a number of the same types of cases all in a row. And I know when I get to one episode, I'll actually have a little bit more information about the episode with Chessie, the manatee, as, you know, I actually, when looking for a picture of Chessie the manatee, I found some other aquatic creatures that have been rumored to be the mythical Chessie, not Chessie the manatee. So when I get to one episode, I will also include that at the beginning, as there is a little bit of a correlation between that particular episode that's upcoming. I just found it very interesting that I searched for a number of keywords about Chessie and then, you know, finding the manatee Chessie, you know, searching different things about him and then not finding anything about this other creature until I was actually just searching for an image. So I hope everybody does have a great rest of your week and I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye.